0: <laughs> Let's see, uh, uh, Bob,
1: would you
0: guys lead us a prayer? Well, I'll pray guys. I Dear Heavenly
1: Father, we're thankful Lord for you and thankful for all you do for us, we're thankful for what you provide, thankful for the provision of this building, Lord, that we can meet together and and study your word. We do pray, Lord, that uh, as we look into your word and into the Psalms that uh, would keep us attentive and that we would uh, learn from what God's teaching. And we pray in Jesus' heavenly name. Amen. amen. Okay, uh, last week,
0: let's see, we left off, we finished page 24. Tonight we're going to pick up with page 25. And uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 51. Uh, as it turns out, my notes are done in NASB. I do my seminary in the NIV, but it's because I did this for a Bible Institute of Church, I use NASB, but translations to me, I don't really I'm not moved by some of all those issues and stuff like that. It's, uh, you know, I've, I've had some people at churches confront me who are King James only and uh, I usually, I open up my Palm Pilot, I've got a Hebrew Bible there, and I think, why don't you read this? Turn in your Bible (laughs) and let's see if we can swap notes here. So, uh, if you have NASB, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the ESV, the King James, the New King James, it doesn't matter to me. So, uh, anyway, but tonight we are going to look at Psalm 51. I will be trying to focus on my NID as opposed to my use of NASB in my notes. <coughs> but that's simply to be in conformity with your, your church's version. Now, Psalm 51 is one of the lament songs. <coughs> Jim, good to <Hi>. see you.
1: <laughs>
0: um, Psalm 51 is one of the lament songs. Remember we have the individual and the corporate laments. This is what's called a penitential lament. Now the theology in Psalm 51 is very, very important, I think, as far as understanding what an Old Testament believer understood about sin, especially as a believer. So we'll go through this, and I will uh, touch upon the theology of the psalm because I think it's pretty important for us to understand. There are a lot more similarities with Old Testament believers and we've realized. That's the point. So it doesn't mean everything's exactly the same, but there's a lot of similarities. So we're, we're going to look at this psalm. But first, let's look at my introduction on page 25. In the interpretive history of the psalms, Psalm 51 has been categorized as a penitential psalm. You know, penitential like in repentance. There are seven psalms labeled as penitential psalms. Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, Pike, and Psalm 143. So, with these six psalms, they're classified that. Uh, However, I'm not sure that all fit in precisely like that. For example, we will look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is really a Thanksgiving psalm. It looks back at some of David's ways in a few verses about how he did come to repentance, how he felt guilty. But the focus of the psalm is, is the one of thanksgiving. He's thanking God because he did forgive him for his sin. So that's really an individual thanksgiving psalm. Where this is strictly a penitential <clears throat> psalm. So a penitential psalm expresses sadness and some form of repentance over sin and it's consequence guilt and appeal for God to show mercy by granting forgiveness and deliverance from sin. There are a number of different terms used in these psalms, both literal and figurative, to picture man's depravity and thought activity. And these terms are generally clustered into several closely connected <clears throat> verses. These expressions of depravity are accompanied by profound reflections of sorrow and guilt. In addition, the consequences of sin will be presented in these psalms. At times, man's sinfulness is described in terms of some sickness or physical affliction, which may be spoken as a punishment from the Lord. Since the sickness and sin are considered to be so closely related in this way, the fervent plea for healing includes within itself an unexpressed request for forgiveness from sin. So depravity becomes very important here because it rises to the surface in David's life. I think we should understand a few things about depravity. So do you mind if I turn over to to a few New Testament texts? People, Everybody says they're Uh, depraved. But I think this is kind of a shallow expression of depravity. But let's look at Romans 8. Total depravity is much more serious than what we've realized. Uh, It means I am sinful, I'm corrupt, I'm unable to please God. Uh, If uh, you ever want to look at that on my website, on my blog, I've done some things on total depravity. So... Just go to a Google search engine, put Old Testament studies. I'm the Old Testament guy at Detroit. So Old Testament studies, remember, and then put my last name, and you'll come up to it. And there's a little search engine there on the right. Just put in total depravity. And I've got about four posts on it, and they're really quite good. Uh, You know, the first one I did, I had a picture of my son Bob's little girl when she was six months to a year old, because she looked so innocent. (coughs) That's why I chose her, because we don't think of babies as being the prey. Now, by the way, before I did this, I never took pictures of people unless I got their permission first. I got her mother and dad's permission, who believe exactly what I do. So that was the key thing. But in my series of posts, I explain how the the is passed on through mother and dad. So I do a little post. I explain depravity. I explain that it includes total inability. And then I blame it on her parents. So, the next blog post I did, I've got a picture of all three of my granddaughters sleeping, and they all look very innocent. And, you know, I go back to it, and I said, but where did that come from? Was it just her parents? And then, you uh, there's a picture of my wife and I, when I think I was 30, probably 30, she's 28, and she had a beautiful dark hair, um, its I mean, she's not gray, but it's tinted. <laughs> I, mean, I, think that's it. I don't know how much gray my wife has. <laughs> yeah. I would not want to know because she doesn't want me to know. I had a full head of hair, it was dark, and I had this beard. It was, it was a nice beard. And I said, here's where it goes back to me. us. So when I'm talking about depravity, I'm not talking about some ethereal. You're depravity. This includes me. It includes my wife. It includes my children. These um, are so children. I think they were about three, five, and seven. and They all look innocent. So you know that's got to be a number of years ago because uh, some of you know from inner-city Baptists, you know none of them are innocent. <laughs> but the point where I'm going with this is that I don't like to talk about depravity and saying, it's just you who are depraved. I am wicked. <laughs> I am depraved. My thoughts are not always what they should be. That's because the depravity still <clears throat> is on. Now, I do not say the believers, genuine believers, are totally depraved. They're able to please God. This passage in Romans that we're going to look at proves that. So let's let's drop down to Romans eight, verse five. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. See, that's why it's say for a believer. They're not totally depraved, but they're still depraved. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. (coughs) Nor can it do so. Now did you notice that? It says, nor can it do so. The truth of the matter is, when I became a Christian, I was hostile to God. I did not submit to God's law. And furthermore, not only did I not do it, I could not do it. And for some strange reason, when the Gospel was presented to me, it was probably about the millionth time, uh, something strange happened at 4 or 5 in the morning, I I really wanted Christ. I can't explain it, I knew the Gospel, I could explain it to you. I didn't embrace it. That February morning, I embraced the gospel. I wanted to embrace it. Well, what went on there? Regeneration. See, I was totally unable to believe God. The Spirit of God regenerated me, He gave me spiritual life. And how do you know you have it? Well, you repent and believe. And, uh, you know, He's then continued on through indwelling, and I think. Indwelling is a necessary component because then i fall back into my completely depressed state. <laughs> so you've got to have that influence. So really what the Spirit does, the, well before I was converted, can I say the Spirit permeated me? Uh, do you all believe the Spirit's on my presence? But yet you'll hear people when they get converted, they'll say how the Spirit came upon them, how they got into well. I used to talk that way I don't talk that way. But I would understand when I use the term indwelling, I'm talking about the spirit continuing to change my life spiritually. It's a spiritual orientation. I need him to do that. But it all started with regeneration. That's when the animating work of God's spirit started, and it continues on through indwelling. Now, somehow the spirit works mysteriously. I don't understand it. Uh, I wish I could explain it but I do know that uh, I am called upon to mortify the deeds of the flesh, and as I do mortify them, the Spirit is at work. Although I don't really feel anything. It's my orientation. So notice, this verse powerfully defines depravity. It's an inability to please God. Uh, And notice, he goes on, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Now here's our struggle today as Christians. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have... Uh, by the way, that's a generic. It means brothers and sisters. Uh, therefore, people, God, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, that's the term mortify. That used to be used in theology books all the time. That means putting to death. Our obligation is to put to death, to mortify the misdeeds of the body. You will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Abba, Father. And the Spirit testifies with our spirit. Uh, Whatever that means, it seems like we have a confidence we belong to God. Now, <coughs> this is a very important passage because it does explain depravity, includes inability. Further, it does use expressions, the spirit does indwell us, so don't misunderstand when I say the spirit's on that treasure. Indwelling is something of a metaphor, it's not strictly a metaphor because the spirit's there, but it's something to describe the life-maintaining work of the spirit. You know, for example, in the Old Testament, you know, the Spirit appeared in the Shekinah glory. we uh, see brightness. Remember how the Holy of Holies, the Spirit, would be there? Well, that doesn't deny that the Spirit was on my presence. He's manifesting His presence in a certain way. And what He does with believers, Old and New Testament, He manifests His presence by beginning His life-renewing work in the Spirit. And he continues that through indwelling, which is the life continuing work of the Spirit. So, theologically, when we are talking about indwelling, we're talking about maintaining a spiritual life internally. But it's not denying that the Spirit is omnipresent. I mean, the way people talk, <laughs> I can't believe what they say. You yeah, know, it's like he wasn't there, but all of a sudden he's there. Well, friends, that's a, I mean, can I be blunt? That's heresy, quite frankly. You can never get away from God's Spirit. Uh, Whether you go into the high parts, the low parts, the Spirit's there. So, now I say all this as a background to Psalm 51. David is a man who can please God. But he fell into sin and he wasn't pleasing God. That suggests to you and I that we could do the same thing. However, I would say that if somebody's a genuine believer, I mean, I've known some believers who've fallen into deep sin, deep sin. But then I've seen them later in life repent. Now, by the way, those are the exceptions to the rules. Usually, what happens when somebody falls deep in the sin and continues in it, it probably reflects that they never were saved to start with. But I do know some exceptions, and you probably do too. And. uh people who went to the inner city you. <laughs> so, uh, to me, David would be one of those guys who, when you looked at him, you think he turned away from the faith. But as Psalm reflects, he did not. But there's no way we can know when somebody seems to go in a uh, disobedient way. In fact, if I talk to somebody like that, I never give them assurance of salvation. Never. That's a mistake. I always question your salvation. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith or not. Uh, and to me, at that point, I think that's a good thing to do. See, we begin the Christian life with repentance and faith. How do we continue it? With repentance and faith. <clears throat> I started as a repentant, I repented, I continue to be a repentant. That's where 1 John 1 9 comes in. I also continue my belief. I started with faith in Christ, and today I'm still resting on uh, that faith. So it's not about works, friends. Although works will follow, but it's really about maintaining a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Now, I have seen some people deny it. We've had uh, a seminary student uh, who was really hot on the trail denying this uh, and created great confusion in my mind. Great confusion. Oh. He said 1 John 1.9 related to believers initially. Well, if you read the context of First John, that can't be the case. It's a series of tests, how you can know you're saved. The first one is, do you have a sin-confessing attitude? Then it talks about love of the brethren, uh, obedience to Christ, adorning the Christian doctrines, things like that. So it's it's just, it's just it's wrong-headed, in fact. Our Dr. Combs at the seminary. He wrote his THM thesis on that, and I think he does an outstanding job. I wish our seminary student would have really focused on that more. So, anyway, he's he's probably friends with some of us. (laughs) But, uh, you know, those types of things distress us. So, my point is, is, I am drawing upon this from the matrix of my own experience. I do think that unless we have a repentant attitude, and I continue in that. I may continue to re- I may reflect. I'm an unbeliever, and that's what scares me. So let's take a look at this psalm. It's uh It is a penitential psalm. It's dealing with David when he's fallen into deep sin, and if you notice from the uh, superscription, that little heading. This is when the prophet Nathan confronted him after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. The psalm will go on to tell us about his blood guiltiness. So, Magda, those are pretty serious sins. Uh, you know, this, there is adultery, but there's also murder. So, this guy is pretty deep seated in his lust. And this is the end result. You know, when you have power, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I believe that. I hope you do too. Uh, Because that is true. Well, David really did fall greatly. And I think in part, it's when you're the top dog, you can get away with a whole lot. However, as a believer, some of those things you hear may cause you to either curse God or submit to God. In David's case, he did submit. In Saul's case, he did not. He went out and showed himself to be an unbeliever. So, let's take a look at some of the items in this psalm. This is a penitential psalm. It is the Holy Spirit who produces in sinful humanity new desires to follow God and His holy designs. And it is the same Spirit who renews these desires in a fallen believer, as was the case with David in Psalm 51. So that the renewed believer desires holiness and wants to tell others about God's mercy. That's the gist of the psalm. Well, the consequence of recovery and restoration is often celebrated in the words of praise that convey the forgiven sinner's great joy over what God has done for him. So what we'll do, we'll initially look at some of the literary elements here. then I will have a <coughs> outline on page 27, but I will confine my comments to as we go through the literary features. I have the text cited here, and it's a good point to uh, interpret some of these key details. So notice point A, small letter A, the literary features found in Psalm 51. This penitential psalm is an individual lament. As the lament psalm, this has the same five literary elements that we saw in Psalms 13 and 60. However, there is no explicitly stated clause about David putting his trust in God. Yet it is David's trust in God's mercy that undergirds the whole movement of the psalm. Look at his introductory appeal to God in, in verse 1. <coughs> he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Notice the appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see that in verse one. Also we can see uh for continuity I'll read verses one and two, but my focus will be on the lament in verses three to six. Have mercy on me, O God. So there's the introductory appeal, and then he continues according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now here's the lament, verses 3 to 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts, you teach me wisdom in the inmost parts. Now let me sketch the background a little bit for this. In fact, uh <coughs> let's turn back to Samuel uh second Samuel twelve. should connect this with the historical books. David's uh, fallen into great sin. Remember the story, we won't read chapter 11, but in this uh, he lusts after her when she's when she's uh, washing. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe it should have been at war. <laughs> but whatever, he has some free time. And so uh, he lusts after her. He takes her. And she gets pregnant. Her husband, Uriah, is a faithful surgeon, soldier. Uh, David wants to cover up his sin, so he has her husband called from the front so that it will come back and look like he's the daddy. But this guy's so loyal to his troops for fighting, he won't touch his wife. <laughs> I mean. So David's in a real quagmire. So what he does is he has... Uh, uh, Joab, they go to a battle, and Joab has the enemy line, um, has the uh, Israelite line fall back, but he doesn't tell Job or uh, Joab, and so Joab's killed. So then he's able to take her to be his wife and um, cover up to sin. I'm not sure how you work that out, but it seems to me I was always able to count pretty well, at least on my hands. <laughs> so. He's covering up his sin. Now, we don't know how much time went by, but the baby's born and then the baby's taken. Sometimes people assume that the baby's taken immediately. We don't know that. Some will say it could be as much as two or three years. Now, the reason why that's significant, it should tell us when we're dealing with friends who have fallen into sin, although we want to confront them about their salvation, We also need to have in the back of our mind, this could be something, they may be genuine believers. They may be covering over, but they will eventually repent. So you know, I don't want to cut off my relationships with them. But nevertheless, they may go the other way. More times than not, they show themselves to be an unbeliever. But I do know a few people who have repented. And because of that, that gives me great hope. But it shows that they're believers. So, two or three years go by. We come to 2 Samuel 12. This is where Nathan confronts him. He tells him this neat little story about a lamb and how this rich farmer uh, takes advantage of another and kills the lamb that he loves. Well, David, he's indignant about this. Uh, And, uh, you know, he's, he pronounces some harsh judgments here. and Then in verse 7, uh, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. The story is about you. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took... The wife of your wives and the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord said. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you before your eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Wow, that's that's different. Uh, he he's just up front with it. Uh, Nathan has more to say to him, but let's compare this for a moment with Saul. Remember, First Samuel 15, Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites, everything, and he doesn't do it. He takes the uh, king of Amalek and. Apparently they're going to taunt him. And whatever you do in wartime situations, I think you really abuse somebody. And, uh, you know, he's supposed to, uh, you know, get rid of his sheep and stuff like that, just kill them, and he keeps them. And so the uh, prophet Samuel comes up, and uh, Saul had gone ahead, and he was was having a, can I call it a party? So they're apparently probably sporting with the king of Amalek. They're they're getting ready for a choice lamb dinner. And Samuel comes up and he confronts them, and he says, uh, what's the bleeding of the sheep in my ears or something like that? I have so many different versions of mine, I can't remember one. But uh, he can hear the sheep. And so he confronts Saul, and he goes through a extended discourse in 1 Samuel 15. There's about 15 verses that deal with this. Finally, he's able to get a confession out of Saul. But in verse 30, Saul confesses. He's forced into it. And he says, Now go back and honor me before the people. Now, does that sound like humility? It doesn't to me at all. But you get David, he's genuine. As the context goes on you can see it. And he writes Psalm fifty one as an outgrowth of it. So what does that reflect about Saul? May I say I don't take it that Saul is a believer. He was part of the community. He was the king. Uh, he uh, at the end of his life is just wretched. He goes resorts to witches at the end and he's a classic symptom that we'll see with people who go along with the Christian community and then turn away. But when you go to witches and friends, you know, you know, if I like call Dion Warwick on the psychic hotline. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this is a good group to be with. I use that with some of my seminary students. They have no <laughs> idea <laughs> So I mean I feel like I'm really old, but I do remember you know, Dion Warwick. <laughs> and so do you. <laughs> well, that's that's bad. You know, in the South, they got these palm readers and all this stuff. There's people who can tell the future. And that's what they're looking for. Well, that's really idolatry. Saul resorts to that. So Saul shows the marks of a clear unbeliever. But David, he does repent and does show the marks of a believer. And he might have been going on in this thing for two, three years. So he repents. We get Psalm 51. Well, that's the background. Now, if there's any questions on that? It's kind of gory. It's, I've had seminary students say, "How can a man of God slip that far?" I said, "Well, the depravity's still there. <laughs> it all depends on what you're feeding." <laughs> so, it's possible for. In fact, I always, when somebody says that to me, so you're saying you couldn't fall into sin? And my constant rejoinder is, "I'm not beyond it." In fact, I can remember with uh, with uh, one of her children, we had with one of them, it gave us some real fits. I'm glad he's grown up and improved quite a bit, but I can remember at the height of his disobedience. <clears throat> I'm trying to angle out a way to communicate to him that he needs to deal with his spiritual situation. That to me, it seemed pretty bleak. And so I was studying, and I was writing a journal article and. So I called him in, into my study and I said, uh, there's a common person we know who turned away from the faith. And I said, do you remember so-and-so? Do you think he's a believer? And he's just kind of, he doesn't know what to say. And I said, the way he's living right now, I wouldn't call him a believer. And I'll never forget, I said to him, you know, son, if I commit adultery and I turn away from the ministry, do me a favor and tell people I was not a believer. I don't want disgrace to disgrace the name of God. Well, he was sobered. <laughs> I mean, he was sober. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that he always got the point, but uh, to me, uh, you know, all my children need to face that reality. I need to face that reality. My wife needs to face that reality. For us not to face it shows that we've got a level of arrogance in us. Let him who takes his stand take heed lest he fall. And there have been some people falling a long ways. But we need to be mindful that we can't just always pass the buck. So I always say the students say that. I never say that. I'm setting myself up for fall. Now having said that doesn't mean that I'm not going to fall, but at least I'm aware of it. Well David's a classic example You know how important he is in God's sight? He's called a man after God's own heart. Now, I don't see God saying that about me in the loudspeaker. I haven't heard him say it about Pastor Ken. (laughs) And he's what I would have might have expected for. But, you know, the point is if the man after God's own heart could fall into sin like that, anybody can. Anyone. It doesn't matter whether he's Pastor, community Baptist, intercity Baptist church, uh, whatever—they're all susceptible for it, and I think people in a position of leadership, at least most of the ones I know a little pretty well, they're cognizant of that because they understand the gravity. So you need to always recognize you're a little bit more wicked than some of you think about yourself. Some are more optimistic about themselves. I've always been a little bit more pessimistic. So it may not be as bad as what I think. However, it's still bad. (laughs) So we've all got to recognize that because if we don't, we put ourselves in a position where we can fall. So the the category that David's in, we could end up in the same situation. And that's bad. Uh, I'm sure you can... Relate to pastors and some leaders who uh, committed adultery and lost their ministry. Uh, unfortunately, I know a lot. It's not something that's just not involved with the fundamentalist world. Uh, it's also involved with the evangelicals. It's it's mainstream. So, and I know of other sins. I know of a leader who is a well-known evangelical leader. And he's been caught plagiarizing. He's gonna lose his substance. If you plagiarize you need to go down. Because that's thou shalt not steal. (laughs) And when you're publishing it as your own, you don't say you quoted him. That's at least in academic circles, that's Christian academic circles, that's a major sin. So and I think that's the way it should be. So I do see people who get caught up, you have to turn out this or that, so you quickly take something from somebody else thinking nobody will know. So, uh, you know, you know, with writing, back in the good old days in the seminary, we didn't have to write journal articles and books and stuff like that. Those were the good old days. Now my vacation time is consumed on doing research. So I don't enjoy, I mean, I like doing it, so don't let me give you the wrong impression. It's a love-hate relationship, though. On the one hand, I like doing it, but when I'm doing it, I actually hate it. So I've got about three or four writing projects going on now, and um, I'm reading a dissertation for somebody graduating from the Master's Seminary, and we've got our own THM thesis to read. You know, we very rarely just sit down and relax. But I did take my wife out to day before Valentine's Day. So that was a positive thing. Uh, I, I'm sure you all did as well. <laughs> if you didn't, maybe you need to repent. <laughs> but uh, for her, it's a big deal. And, you know, she put too much into my life not to give her some of those things, so I didn't show callous. But I wasted it. That's <laughs> her. We used up eight to nine hours of her time. And I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> So, but those are the pressures you have. In those things, you can do things that are unethical. Now, I don't think that that's on the same level as murder and adultery. But I do think this relates to the tenth command It does relate to the luster of life. You know, you want your name to be out there, you want people to say they've read your article, or they've read your chapter in this book or, or your book. So, I mean, that honors myself more than anything. But you know, I always tell myself, I'm doing this the glory of God, and I, I think I'm true on that. But there's still me involved, so it's you know, you can take shortcuts. Well, that can affect all of us. So let's not just you know, uh, you know, condemn David because he fell like that, because it's possible for all of us. So this psalm wasn't only for David; it's for you and it's for me. So notice how he goes on here. This is very interesting. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. See, he's looking back to the time when he had sinned and he covered it up. And he was cognizant that my transgressions and my sins, they're always before me. I go to bed at night and there they are. Against you, you only have a sin. Now that's very good. That, that's involved in true repentance. Against you, you only have I like, sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. I mean, there were consequences. They could have been worse, but he did have consequences. And notice this profound verse. Surely I was sinful at birth. And sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yeah, you know, that's an extremely important verse dealing with personhood. <clears throat> you know all those who are pro-abortion. I know uh, they want to view it just as law of a glob of fetus. I prefer calling it an unborn baby because let's not cover it up. Uh, to me, that's murder. I've written an article arguing for that. Um, and it is sinful notice this verse says I was sinful at birth so I was a depraved newborn child totally depraved and notice sinful from my time my mother conceived me he backs up nine months and he's saying at conception I was sinful now that's, that's very profound are any animals called sinners if you find one, let me know. Because I've been saying for a long time, it's only people who are called sinful. And of course you have those angels that fell and whatever happened to them. But that it's personal agents who are sinful. So when I look at that verse, he's saying, I was sinful birth. I'm a personal agent. I had a depravity within me. It was there from the very beginning at conception, which means I was a person. So that's extremely important. I do know there are people in Christian churches who just want to poo poo that. But friends, you can't get away from the theological consequences of this. Psalm 139 says the same thing. I know when uh, Thibaut did his uh, ad at the Super Bowl, it was so funny to hear these uh, feminists, these radical yes. feminists, just going on about that. But Focus on the Family did a one-upmanship there. I would have never know that that was about his mother not having an abortion. She called him her miracle child or something like that. But that's it. Of course, they're upset because he tackled his mother. Well, I mean, they I mean, that's a that's a spoof. Um, my kids used to r- wrestle with their mother when they were younger. Now, when they were older, that was a problem. But it's not it like he hurt her. It was they were trying to be funny, nothing more, nothing less. But that did put the ad at really prime time, and people will look to focus on the family, and they are strongly against abortion. So, to me, I thought that was very effective. And I thank God for his parents stand on abortion. I'm glad for Tim Tebow's stand on abortion. The truth is, he is my favorite football player, not because he's the greatest quarterback. I like the fact that he carries his witness onto the football field, although he probably will not be drafted. So, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean we can't appreciate people who trying to be a testimony in all areas of life, and that's why I like him. Plus my uh, youngest son Joshua's wife, uh, Kristen, she's got a B.A. from the uh, University of Florida and an M.A. Uh, somewhere in his youth his childhood, he must have done something good because his, his wife is real smart. She had an academic scholarship in Florida and her undergrads degree and her master's degree. And she's smart enough to make him think that he's the smartest in the family. That's real smart. <laughs> because he thinks he's smart. <laughs> so, but I think his wife's got it over him. But, uh, you know, she's a Tebow fan. There's a picture of her mother with Tim Tebow. <laughs> I mean, So they're really Florida backers. Well, it was outstanding. I mean, we should rejoice with all those who are opposed to abortion. I think we need to actively oppose it. I don't think we should be going out to shoot people. That's unbiblical, uh, but the way we can, in our legal society, we can oppose those things. And I think we should. I sign petitions. I don't go on marches. Uh, I'm not opposed to people going on marches, but I'm associated with Detroit Baptist Seminary. And because of that, I didn't, well would not feel free to do that because they might think we're trying to get involved in the social gospel. But I sign a lot of petitions. I put stuff on my blog about abortion. I'm opposed to it. So to me I think we should do it. This is a moral atrocity in our society. We've got I've got friends in Britain. We've talked about the difference, they're Christians and they think we've got a harsher policy on abortion. I don't I don't I think it's only rare exceptions that a child will be aborted in the third trimester. So they think we're more wicked, but, you know, I think we're both wicked if we do it first term, second term, third term. What's that? What's the difference when? Yeah, to me, that's the issue. And, you know, with Sarah Palin, she would not be my pick for president. But I do like her position against abortion. So, uh, to me, I think those are good things. I just (coughs) think that Sarah gets fried by the media. (laughs) I'd rather see them go after Newt Gingrich because he can give it back. <laughs> so this is, to me, a good verse to deal with abortion. Also, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, that deals with David even before he was conceived. So that, that's important. So notice what David's saying here, my depravity. That goes back to my conception. So, he was, you know, he hasn't committed any sinful acts, but he does have a sin nature. And that sin nature is fully bent away from God. All that happens at birth, you get the opportunity to express your depravity, and you express it more when you keep mom and dad awake. And then you start to crawl, and then it's even more fully expressed. uh. But it's still part of their depravity. I mean they're they're focused on their self needs. I don't think when they cry that they're necess- that they're crying, oh God, be glorified. <laughs> <laughs> be be glorified when I want to be bad. I mean, <laughs> well mama doesn't think that. <laughs> so he's tracing this depravity back very early. Then he says in verse 6, Surely the desired truth in the inner parts, and teach me wisdom in the inmost part. What is the truth in the inner parts? Truth about my <coughs> gravity. Truth about God's holiness. Did you notice the preceding verse? And justified when you judge. So it's truth about himself, truth about God. You teach me wisdom, wisdom about what, wisdom about my depravity, wisdom about God's holiness. And by the way, as the psalm goes on, he's also convinced something about God's mercy. So put God in his proper context, but don't miss—he is talking about truth and wisdom about his depravity. So this part of the lament is, uh, can I say, theologically loaded. There's a lot in there. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's ignored by most. And that's what's sad. Well, that's the lament. Like Psalm 13 and Psalm 60, a key feature in identifying the lament is the psalmist's expression of mourning. The precise reason for mourning is David's personal sin. While David's sinfulness <coughs> is clustered in these verses, he repeatedly refers to his personal sinfulness, his culpability. Let's go back to verse 2 again, or verse 1. <coughs> <Notice> Those personal <coughs> pronouns here. Have mercy on me, O God. Notice the me. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities, cleanse me from my <coughs> sin. Now he'll go on and focus on himself more about his depravity, but notice whatever else we can say, this is showing his personal culpability before God, so he is responsible for his sin. Uh, notice further in verse seven he says uh Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Notice he's thinking back to the ritual cleansing where they take the hyssop, uh, put some blood on it, and sprinkle it. Uh, they would sprinkle it around houses, you know, I guess on the center as well. And so it's a ritual he's thinking of, but he's really talking in particular about the cleansing process. And I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The joy and gladness about what? Well, that his sins are forgiven. That's what he wants to hear. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Now, well, if we, if, if we have all the information in the historical books about what happened, notice David never had a broken bone. So, a bone here, it is uh, something of what's what we would call synecdoche. The part, the bone, stands for the person. Uh, in fact, more precisely, the bones is the inner person. And I think he's focusing on uh, let me, starting with my internal being, uh, I acknowledge that you crushed my person. That's his point. That's a graphic way to say it. That's a preacher way of saying it. You know, a little bit of the use of uh, graphic language is always good for the sermon. A little bit of hyperbole here or there. That even enhances it. Uh, So, here, he is referring to his person having been crushed by God because of sin. Notice he goes on Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Notice the repetition here. He's really hung up on his iniquity, isn't he? And he's hung up on God forgiving him. Hides your face. Blot out all my iniquity. So David does see God as being holy, but he also sees him as a merciful God. And he has a picture of that in the sacrifices. When people sin, uh, they gave a sacrifice. I don't know that for every individual sin they rest off and sacrifice. More than likely there was a build-up. they would be like me, I'm cheap. Um, I'd commit my fair share and then, you know, go off for sacrifice. Kind of like Catholics do when they go to the priest. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of Catholicism is based off the of Old Testament imagery. So, but I think there's a profound difference. Also. Don't, don't, don't just dismiss me because I said that, but it does seem to me that with Catholicism there's a lot of similarities with the Old Testament because it's not really a true, a fully Christian system. I mean, it claims it is, but uh, you know, when you're re-crucifying Christ in the Mass and it's being repeated, friends, that is not the death of Christ that the Bible talks about. So I'm not endorsing Catholicism, but I have the Catholic approach. <laughs> if I was there, I would build up the sins, wait for that big one, and then go offer my sacrifice. Now, I suspect the Israelites did that. So, David's got the sacrificial system in mind. Uh, so, he says, uh, You know, Blood all of my iniquities, verse 10, uh, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So, he wants forgiveness, but also he wants a renewal in his spirit. I think they go hand in hand. We have God forgiving this sin and then renewing his inner being so that we're oriented, can I say, positively towards obedience to Christ. That's uh, the type of request he makes there. Then the other interesting verse is do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This is a verse that is really abused. Uh, when I was in college, I dated an Armenian girl, a Nazarene. You know, we thought we were going to get married, and uh, she and her family were bent on making me an Armenian. Well, we're, we're born Armenian. <laughs> it takes the work of grace to become Calvinistic. Uh, I think I've experienced the full manifestation of that, Grace. (laughs) You can figure that out on your own. But this was the verse. She had me meet her pastor, and he he beat me with the verse. I had my Greek teacher. He had a Ph.D. in classical Greek. He was also pastor of a Quaker church. He would use this. He had me read a book by Shank on life in the sun. But... uh, You know, I was reading my Bible too much and I couldn't believe I could lose my salvation. So I was kind of deep seated and some of those types of things ultimately culminated in our breakup and thank God because you know, I did meet the uh you know, I knew when my wife and I first started dating that she was the guy I wanted to marry. So since she worked in the uh Hamburger joint at Tennessee Temple. Can I say it was love at first bite?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, anyway, I need to explain this verse a little bit more fully, and we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to dismiss you early tonight, only oh, a few minutes, but I do need to let you know, next week I will not be here. I'm going to Arizona. I'm going to try out. And um, uh, Pastor Ken said they will have somebody else come in and He's going to do something on a topic they can address in one way. I told Kenneth he wants to, he's welcome to use my notes. However, most of the notes at this point in life, I know, let's <laughs> fill in. The other person might not have that. So he said he will take care of everything. So if he's an honorable man, he'll take care of it. So And he is. Anyway, thanks for your attention, and you know, I hope you all... Uh, don't get too much caught up in the glory next week because I'll be back to falling. <laughs> and we are going to pick up with verse 11. I think there's a good explanation for it besides saying you can lose your salvation. Okay, until then.